The following is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. More teaching like this can be found at graceteaching.net or searching Grace-Oriented Teaching wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here is our speaker. Here is uh, what you have there, the title, An Overview of the Three Tenses. I have in a parenthesis, Installments of Salvation. Um, what we're going to be looking at is, is what we have and when we got saved, what we have today and what we'll have in the future. And there's a, an important reason why uh, we need to emphasize this in, I would say, evangelical Christendom uh, because of the confusion that exists uh, in this fashion. Uh, this is going to be an overview. A lot of these things, uh, Steve has touched on, on uh, many of those things. In fact, I, I think he went through uh, uh, all of uh, s- uh, seminary theology. And, <laughs> and so I don't know what he's got for, for his next message. But uh, we're going to be touching on some of the same things uh, from a different viewpoint and so forth. But uh, how many of you, you're, you're familiar with J. Vernon McGee yeah. through the Bible? Okay. Five-year program going through the 66 books of the Bible, and uh, he does it in five years. Okay, now, J. Vernon's with the Lord, too, but they, we still hear the, the repeat of the programs again and again. And his announcer will say this, uh, after they give a few announcements and everything, they say, now let's hop on the Bible bus, and we're going to uh, begin or continue our trip through the Bible. In five years, you cannot do a real close focus uh, not even a fair focus on all of Scripture. And uh, Jay Vernon doesn't try and do that. Uh, he uh, gives you an overview, and then he'll stop and, and uh, focus on some things. When we went through uh, the book of Revelation, it took us, and here again, I can't remember times. I just remember we did it. It, it was probably at least two years, if not more, that we uh, went through the book of Revelation. And at the time, uh, as, as we began to get started, I said, as J. Vernon McGee had his Bible bus, I said, we're going to take a Bible helicopter and go over the forest of those 22 chapters of the, the book of Revelation. And what a helicopter can do, you're up high and you can see the whole forest. So now you're in an overview. But a helicopter can also hover. So now you can just kind of stay and kind of look at a, an area Helicopter can also set down and land, uh, and you can get out and begin looking at the trees a little closer. And then my people know that this can happen from time to time. I'm sure it does with uh, Steve and Tim. Is you begin to go up to one of the trees and you become a bark inspector. <laughs> and so you're looking at detail. No. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> we'll. We want to do an overview. There might be some places where, as the Spirit leads, we'll just uh, hover a little bit and maybe land. Hopefully, not. we're not going to do too much bark inspection. But you're not going to see from the world, uh, the, the publications that are printed by society, uh, broadcast news and programs and so forth on the Internet or anything like that, what a born-again believer has in their salvation. They don't know anything about it. And, and why, why should they? Because they're dead in trespasses and sins, where 
we were. Uh, so we're no different than them, except we've experienced something different. And so what the world won't tell us, we have to continue to have a, a, a focus. And so that's why we want to do an overview of where have we been? How did we get into the family? How do we live while we're in the family? And then when the family is all complete and we're uh, graduated to glory. So we want to uh, look at things uh, in this fashion. Mark, the f yes. Let me warn you that I don't think this is the copy that we updated. So I may have sent uh -oh. the wrong copy. So okay. have people be prepared with their pens to change a couple of verse references. All right, all right. But if, if I even stop at some of those yeah, yeah. verses. So we got a lot of things. Um, the, the first thing we want to look at is that there are, uh, Scripture tells us there are three installments of salvation. I don't know if you've uh, gotten something for your kids at Christmas that, that came in a big package and it said some assembly required or whatever, if you did it for your kids or for your spouse or for some family member or friend or something like that. But when you get, when that big box arrives, that's one thing. Say it's a bicycle. You don't, you don't just put the, bike, the, the box down and you, you hop on it and you, you, you think you're going to use it. But you got it, right? You got the box and everything's in there. Now you got to take it out. And the first thing they say in the instructions is uh, set it all out and be sure all the parts are there. So what the sheet says here, make sure you have there, okay? And you do that. Second step, you got it? You got everything there. Second step is now some assembly required. That's where the frustration can come in and or the fun if you really like to be challenged and so forth. And so you uh, begin to put it together, you accomplish that, and now finally you have a product that you can use, bicycle or whatever. That's what our salvation is. When, when we and I'm just going to use it this way because we're going to talk about the detail of how we get into the family and so forth. But when, when we receive salvation by faith, I'm just going to put it generally like that, you get everything all together. You don't have to, well, I believe for this part, but now I've got to uh, direct faith for this part and then, and, uh, because I don't have it all. No, you possess the whole thing, but you uh, use it in installments or another way we've mentioned here is in tenses and so the first thing we're going to look at is five viewpoints from scripture that demonstrate the three tenses of salvation salvation first of all from the viewpoint of being rescued from sin first timothy chapter 1 verse uh, 15. how many have 115 how many have uh, 2 Timothy 2.15. Okay, you got the wrong sheet. <laughs> we, we, we went, it's 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.15 uh, where Paul says that uh, uh, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. If there were no sinners, God would not have had to ascend his son. But that's the whole thing. And it's not just a few people or some people. It's everybody. Um, the, the first thing, uh, point we have under salvation from the viewpoint of being rescued from sin is salvation from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin. Uh, we have Genesis 2, 16 and 17 where uh, God told uh, Adam 
uh, you can eat of every fruit of, the, uh, of any tree in the garden except one. And in the day that you eat of that tree, dying you will die. And in the Hebrew, the implication is there, or the indication is, there's more than one death. Dying you shall die. And uh, Adam, when he partook of the, the fruit, uh, actually even a little prior to that when he made a decision, a determination to eat of the fruit, uh, he experienced spiritual death. There was a, and death, according to uh, James chapter 2, I think it's verse 26, is a separation. It's not an annihilation. Death is not a cessation. It's a separation. And so death separates. When uh, an individual dies, we have three parts. Two parts are immaterial. And those two immaterial parts uh, departs or separates from the material part. The, the person still exists. The body uh, does not sustain itself because the two immaterial parts have separated. So without belaboring the point because we have a lot of territory to cover here, um, sin brings death. Romans 5.12, and I hope this is a familiar uh, verse because it tells how what Adam did spread to the whole human race. Um, see if I can remember it. I didn't want to look up everything here. For by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for all sinned. And that, that uh, verbal action uh, of all sinning is at one point in time. I used to, when I was a, a younger Christian, I'd look at that verse and I'd go, well, yeah, I, I've done my, I've sinned. And so they, everybody has, has acted out sin, but that's not talking about uh, everybody doing their own thing. It's one time at one point, and that was when Adam sinned, we all sinned. Now, how does that work? <coughs> well, we all came from Adam. And so God did a, something, a wonderful thing, when he imputed or counted true that what Adam did, everybody that would ever come upon this planet did the same thing. Now, nobody was here except Adam and Eve. But Adam died, and everybody was imputed to have done the same thing. And then the first thing you think of is you go, well, that's unfair. Why? I wasn't there. Adam did that. God's imputation is always done righteously. And so when God counts something to be true, it's he does so righteously. In other words, when he looks at me, and he looks at you, and he looks at everybody that has ever been born out from Adam, God correctly sees that if we would have traded places with Adam, we would have done the very same thing Adam did. So God is righteous in imputing. Now, it, it also uh, is a wonderful thing because uh, when God sent his son to be a substitute uh, for sin, for sinners, he, he was a substitute for everybody. Well, how can he do that? Well, of course, billions of times Jesus Christ has to come and go to that cross and crawl up on that cross and die one more time again and again and again. You see, 
when God counted everybody to be in Adam, and when Adam sinned, he said, you all sinned, then how many times did he need to send a savior? For one man, Adam, and everybody in him. So when we're all sinners uh, with Adam, and yet in, when we come to this gospel passage in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 3, it says, Christ died for our sins. They're completely paid for. So what sin caused, death, that, that was paid for. And so we're no longer under the penalty of sin when you experience God's salvation. So uh, the second thing is uh, in, in salvation in relationship to uh, sin, we're saved from the power of the yet indwelling sin nature. You see, when you believe the gospel, your uh, penalty is forgiven, but you still have a sin nature. Now we have plenty of verses for that. Uh, take your Bibles, turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And here Paul is telling about his uh, own uh, background. Yes? Did I? What? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, and I'll do that. So just holler out. Thank you. Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And verse 7. Here we go. I knew I had it marked for a reason. I'm, I'm just going to look at verse 7, and then we're going to look at the last two verses of the chapter. Paul is saying this as a Christian. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. No, I had not known sin except by the law. Do you know that was one of the major purposes of giving the law to Israel? It wasn't to make them righteous. It wasn't to save them. It was to show them that they had sin. It was so obvious. Draw a line, don't step over it. They're indwelling sin nature. And then they do. I had not known sin except, uh, but by the law. For I had not known strong desire or lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not. And by the way, that's the very same word I just mentioned, lust. It says covet in your... Uh, Steve was doing that all the time with uh, how the King, King James likes to use, and that was interesting, how they uh, have a committee, and if it sounds nice, let's use that English word, and even though it's not consistently the way we translated that Greek word before, that's, that's okay. Well, this is one of those uh, times here. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, you shall not lust. Well, Paul's a believer. And what problem does he have? He still has strong desires. So what does that tell us? He still has a sin nature. Now we can go to a lot of other passages, except for time, we're not going to do that. But you come to the last two verses of this chapter, and Paul concludes his dilemma as a Christian with a sin nature that still is bugging him, that still produces lust or strong desires. And he says, O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? This, this physical body that has a sin nature that uh, wants, uh, expresses all of these appetites for the body that's contrary to God's will. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And then he says this. Here's your answer. He answers his question in the next verse. It says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That word thank is the word charis, 
every other place it's translated grace. And uh, the K King James, again, does this from time to time, translates that word thanks, or, uh, or grace by thanks. Thanks is eucharistia. This is just charis. Eucharistia is good grace. This is just saying grace. And so you know what, it's, what Paul is saying here? Here's the answer to the problem of the indwelling sin nature producing these lusts. Grace. Grace. And then the, the uh, uh, way that the word God is written there should be translated uh, uh, in the Greek. Grace to God's credit. There's your answer. Grace to God's credit through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now when you say through Jesus Christ your Lord, you're just opening up a, a, a box of all, of all kinds of revelation of God's provision in salvation of how we can have victory over our indwelling sin nature through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, we're simply going to leave it there tonight because we need to keep uh, running along here. We have salvation from the penalty of sin because Christ died on the cross for sin. We have salvation uh, from the power of the yet indwelling sin nature. Uh, be, uh, through Jesus Christ our Lord, and then we have salvation from the possession of a sin nature. That's in the future, not today. There are different groups in Christendom that hold to sinless perfection, and I'm not sure I haven't studied their viewpoints and so forth, whether they say, yeah, you still have a sin nature, but you cannot, it, it's unusable. Well, that's not true. We just saw what Paul uh, declared there in chapter 7. But there's coming a day when no believer will have a sin nature. And uh, we use Romans 8, uh, 30. We'll be back here again in our uh, this weekend to this passage for a different reason. But uh, we, we simply want to read this. Let, let me read verse 29 and 30 of Romans chapter 7. For whom he did foreknow... God had a, had a foreknowledge of things that are going to happen. By the way, yes? What chapter? What chapter? Uh, this is chapter 8, verse 30, Romans 8, 30. Okay? For whom he, God, did foreknow. What I was going to say was what Romans doesn't fill in here, Ephesians chapter 1 does, about uh, the outworking of, of God's uh, will. Uh, you have... Uh, a desirous will that God has and out of all the desires God, the Godhead chooses something, not everything but some things and they say this is what's going to happen then they have foreknowledge about what they have determined to do so we pick it up here in verse 29 for whom he did foreknow it's talking about individuals those who were called according to his purpose in the previous verse for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now he goes on from that foreknowledge. He foreknows those, the ones he foreknows, it goes on in verse 30, he predestinates. Predestinate is, uh, the word means to fence out ahead of time, so whatever he has determined and he foreknows it's going to happen because he set the, set the fence up that uh, uh, nothing is going to escape what he's determined to do. So that's what predestination is, putting a fence out there ahead of time. 
And then it says, the same ones that he uh, predestined, uh, he called. He called unto salvation. Whom he called, them he also declared righteous. And whom he declared, by the way, you're declared righteous when you believe the gospel. You're called unto salvation. You go, I didn't realize that. I didn't know. This is great. Yes, I'll take advantage of that. So I'm called, and I uh, uh, react. I, I uh, accept that by faith, and then I'm declared righteous. Now, we're going to point out where we're righteous or how this righteousness works in a little bit. Well, maybe not uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow. There we go. Uh, <laughs> Whom he justified, now get this, he also <coughs> glorified. That word glorified, glory means an opinion. God has an opinion of how we're going to end up. It's already set in his mind. And in the future, the ones that he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. And by the way, it's, it's in a, a tense that looks like it's already accomplished. He's, we're, we're glorified, right? No, uh, I still have the glasses. I still have the hearing aids. My hair isn't getting any darker. Uh, the, the aches and pains, I can go on that. My body is not glorified. And yet in God's mind, it is so absolutely certain it's, it's stated as an accomplished fact already because it is in God's mind. We're already glorified in him. That's certain. Uh, we're going to touch on eternal security and we're going to come back and just mention everything we just meant touch, touch on it that we just mentioned just now. So uh, when this happens, and we, we've got Philippians 3.21 in here uh, because that tells us when, when uh, Christ returns, uh, we're going to uh, be like him. Now, we could also go to 1 John chapter 3, verses uh, 1 and 2 there. We're going to be like him. There it says in 1 John 3, before, because we'll see him as he is. But I'm not like him today. I'm, I'm not glorified. I still have a sin nature. But when he comes back, perfect, I'm going to be like him. And you know what he doesn't have? He, ha he doesn't have what I have right now, a sin nature. And so when I'm glorified, I'm going to be free from the possession of a, a, a sin nature. So from the viewpoint of the rescue from sin, we see that scripture tells us there's three installments. You don't get it all at once. You get uh, the fr uh, freedom from the penalty. Today, we have all things that are given to us pertaining to life and godliness. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 2, I believe it is. We have everything to use to be free from the power. And in the future, I'm not going to have to use all of those provisions because it's, I'm going to be perfected. And you are too, if you know Christ is your Savior. Second viewpoint is from physical death. You can look at 2 Corinthians 1, 9, and 10. It's, it actually should be 8 through 10. Uh, Paul simply expresses that uh, uh, they, they were pressed out of measure. They didn't know whether they would live and so forth. Uh, they faced so great a death. And yet God delivered them, will deliver, and he will again deliver in the future. So 
what we have here, and this is the verse I want you to uh, hang on. By the way, let's see if you got it. Do you have Hebrews 114 under B? Uh, B, number one. Okay, rescued from so great a death. Uh, let's turn there. Hebrews 1, 14. This is the verse where we get the idea of guardian angels. It says here concerning these spirit beings, angels, good angels, Paul asks, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be inheritors of salvation? The indication here isn't just getting to the future tense of salvation, but it's even getting to the initial tense of salvation. God is going to make sure that the ones that he is taking out from the nations of people for his name, Acts chapter 15, verse 14, will make that appointment. Nothing is going to stop them. There's not going to be a car accident. Well, there could be a car accident, but they're going to survive. Whatever happens, there's going to be physical survival to make it to the point of initial salvation. And then, rescued from an untimely death. What we have here in these uh, verses in the, the book of Acts is Paul on his first missionary journey. He goes up into Asia Minor, and that portion of what we understand is modern-day Turkey. There was a, a town called Antioch of Pisidia. There was two Antiochs in your book of Acts, so don't get them confused. Ant Assyrian Antioch and Antioch of Pisidia. So up there, he always went to, a, 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 his habit was, his, his manner was, is to go to a, the synagogue, uh, to the Jews first, and then also to the Greeks. But there were Greeks at the synagogue that were, that were in, in or, uh, interested in, in the God of Israel. So they were there, and they were there when Paul preached the gospel. And there were some Jews and some Gentiles that responded. And the uh, message got out, and so the next week, the, the more of the city was there, that, who, what's, this, what's this about? They wanted to hear this. And the unbelieving Jews and the unbelieving Gentiles were stirred up, and they were going to abuse them, it says, and even kill them. And uh, uh, Paul and uh, uh, Silas, am I getting, help me out here. Am I getting the right partner? Barnabas. Barnabas. There we go. Okay, not si Silas isn't yet. It's still, it's still Barnabas, on, only Barnabas on the first missionary journey. They were going to kill Paul and Barnabas. And they heard about this. The Christians, those who became believers, heard about it and warned them, and they left town. The next place they went to was Lystra. Remember what happened at Lystra in Acts chapter 14? The unbelieving Jews came from Antioch and stirred up everybody in the city of Lystra, and uh, they, they stoned them. They were not them, they stoned Paul. They stoned Paul. And when Jews stoned somebody, it wasn't like, oh, we hit him, and I, I, think, he, I think we hurt him a little bit. I see a little cut on his head. No, uh, historians tell us that when Jews carried out a stoning, 
they would not only keep throwing stones till the man or the person was down, they would even look for the largest stone they could uh, to drop on parts of his body like his head or his chest. So what we know is that Paul actually died. Now it doesn't, Luke doesn't tell us that in Acts 14, but we simply know it's a Jewish stoning and, and the, the Jews left and, and, and the, the people, the Gentiles that they stirred up from the city of Lystra, they left. So they were satisfied the guy's dead. That's what we wanted. And it was the believers that stood around his body. It doesn't tell us how long. I don't think it was that long. They stood around his body and Paul gets up. And he, he goes into the city. Hey, that's not real smart, is it? That's just the place. But he didn't stay there long and then he, he moved on to the next uh, stage in his uh, missionary trip. What does this tell us? What is, by the way, that happens to me. And my wife said, don't carry your cell phone in your pocket up into the pulpit. I've had people call me. I can't get you online. What's wrong? And everybody said, I said, wait, we're going to have to handle this. Okay. It's interesting. God has, has a specific program for each person who comes to know his son as their savior and you will not leave this planet while you still have those opportunities. This is out of Ephesians 2.10, those works. You, will, you cannot die. And now you can get hurt, you can get sick. Tells us in Philippians 1.29, it's given to us to believe. We've been given the opportunity to believe the gospel, and then it goes on to say, and to suffer for his sake. I'll take the first half. <laughs> leave, leave the second half out. But you know what? You and I would not grow if we did not have difficulties in our life because difficulties that God allows into our life causes us to throw ourselves in dependence upon him, and that's, that's what his plan is. I've got all the resources for how uh, you are to live how you can live. It's supernatural. It's for you while you're still going to be here, and that's why I left you here. And so you've got all the resources. There's going to be suffering of some level, of some kind. But you're going to live until God's work, all his works that he's planned for us are finally accomplished. And then in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, all that are in the grave will hear his voice. Those that have done good unto the resurrection of, of uh, righteousness and, and those that, that have done evil unto the resurrection of condemnation. We also have uh, Jesus when uh, he had resuscitated, or just before he resuscitated his friend Lazarus, Lazarus' two sisters, Mary and Martha. Oh, if you would have been here just a day ago or so, uh, or a couple days ago, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus is thinking to himself, and he does relate this in his conversation with, with these sisters, that he's the resurrection and the life. That's, I, 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 I purposely missed out on healing him so that he could die, so that I could demonstrate my ability. And here, I'm going to, and he did. He, he uh, resurrected, I'm going to use that word, uh, in a wrong way. He resurrected uh, Lazarus. Now, why did I say a wrong way? Steve said it in the previous message. 
How many people have been resurrected so far? Only one. Well, what about Lazarus? Lazarus was resuscitated because he died again. And there's a lot of individuals that were resuscitated by God in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. We have Dorcas and so forth in Philippi. And, but they all died again. But Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life to uh, Mary. I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes on me, though he were dead, yet he shall live. A believer is going to live again. And so in these three ways, you escape death to get to initial salvation. You continue to escape death or be saved from death uh, while you're living here for the purposes and the time that God has planned for each of you. And then in the future, you're going to be delivered from death completely by bodily resurrection. Salvation, the third way that we see that there's three tenses of salvation is the viewpoint of time. Past tense salvation. I'm just going to mention this. Uh, both in 2 Timothy 1.9 and Titus 3.5, it tells us that we are, Paul says, you, you are saved. We are saved. Done, accomplished. And yet, look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1. Yes, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. And it, there it tells us that we are being saved. 1 Corinthians 1 18. For the word of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are, now in your English it says saved. That's like an aorist tense. It's already happened. But in the Greek, it's in the present tense. You are being saved. You are being saved. How are you being saved? Well, we have Philippians 2.12 here, where it tells, there it tells us to work out your salvation. It doesn't say work for your salvation. Work for it. That That'd be, you could earn it. But that's not what Paul is saying in, to the Philippian believers. Use it. Not work for it, but you've got it. Use it. So salvation is something that you are using right now. Uh, and then it tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, that we're going to be saved from the wrath to come. We will be saved. Hebrews 7.25 uh, tells us that God is able to save them uh, that come to him by faith to the uttermost, to the all end, to the complete end. Salvation. In the past, you're saved. You're being saved. You will be saved. I like to be a little smart aleck now and then I go, well, which one is it? Which one is it? And you know what the answer is? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Which one? Yes. All of them. All of them. But in, in installments. Salvation from the viewpoint of sanctification. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, it tells us that we are sanctified in Christ. Now, the word sanctified means to be set apart. To be set apart. And this is by imputation. Imputation is what God counts to be true in his mind, in his opinion. Imputation is an opinion. 
He sees me the moment I believe the gospel. One of the things that one of two things that happened that the Holy Spirit did. The Holy Spirit placed me into Christ. By the way, yeah, I saw that, and of course it's on it's on the spine of Tim's books and so forth. And you people probably live and breathe that, and that's good because a lot of believers don't realize the two parts of uh, salvation. You're sanctified by being in Christ. You're set apart. How, how much more can you be set apart where Christ has ascended to the third heaven, way beyond the, the north star, out there on the edge of the universe, in the third heaven, the throne room, where Jesus Christ ascended and is seated at the Father's right hand, and God the Father sees you and me to be in him up there. Let's see. Uh, it's pretty separated, isn't it? Pretty well sanctified. That is a great uh, place to be. We're positionally sanctified the moment you believe the gospel. And then uh, we're to work this sanctification out. We're to utilize. We're to act and live as ones uh, who are sanctified. And that's what we see. Uh, in fact, let's, let's look there very quickly. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. Verse 3 and 4. Here we go. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain or hold from fornication that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. That's a sanctification that you practice, a separation from the utilization of your sin nature. I'm set apart in my position in Christ. You know, God sees everything that we do step by step in our daily lives, and from our position, he sees us doing everything correctly. I said everything I should have said correctly there. I did everything I should have done correctly there. Now down here, I don't do what he sees me to do in his son. But he always sees me there. He never fails to see me there. And he knows and he looks at me as one that can do everything that I have opportunity during the day, during every day, to do it accurately, correctly, well-pleasing to him, doing it in a, a way that is separated unto him. And so that's the encouragement here we have in uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, 4, 3 and 4. 1 Peter 3, 15 says, you set, set apart or sanctify the Lord, uh, uh, Christ is Lord in your heart. So he sees you separated, you separate him as the boss. And if you're stepping day by day in your life and you're, you're framing your mind and, and reminding yourself that the Lord Jesus Christ is your boss, you're going to take the next step correctly. And you'll, be, you'll do it in a set-apart way. So from the viewpoint of sanctification, we're sanctified when uh, we're saved uh, by God's opinion. We're sanctified uh, in a practical way as we work out our salvation. And we're finally permanently sanctified. And Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26 and verse 27, there it says, uh, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then it goes on and explains how Christ loved the church. And he's working on the church to cleanse it 
and to present so that he can present it to himself in the future without spot and wrinkle perfectly. And so the way he's going to present the church, and this is going, he, he's working on us right now. I don't, I use my sin nature from time to time. I spot up my life, my, my testimony from time to time. And I need cleansing, it tells me in 1 John 1, 9. From those things that I have, well, they started out with thoughts, and then they ended up, the sin needs confessing. The things that led up to sin that, were, that weren't right, that were kind of, well, not kind of, they were naughty. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Jesus Christ is doing that right now, and you know when he's going to be complete with this activity? At the rapture. The moment the rapture happens, he's finished and accomplished the cleansing of the body, his body, which is going to then be his spotless bride without spot or wrinkle. And so we have salvation in three, uh, from three, three viewpoints of sanctification, Originally, uh, in our position, working out practically, day to day, and then finally at the rapture, we're permanently sanctified. The last uh, of these five uh, viewpoints is from the viewpoint of God's family. And just very quickly, we're birthed into God's family. We have that, well, maybe we should look that verse up. No. John chapter 3, verses uh, 6 and 7. Uh, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born from above. The new birth. It's also called in, in other portions of scripture, it's described as regeneration. Being born into God's family. And then when we're in God's family, we're to grow. Uh, I want you to look at this. 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. We're not automatically mature the moment we believe the gospel. There's a growth process. And you know what God is growing? You probably heard this before. God isn't growing squash. Squash takes a summer. And by the way, I was thinking about squash. Why would they call it squash? You know that? Those are long things they try and give away. Uh, the, uh, what kind of squash am I thinking Zucchini. of? Zucchini squash. But the yellow squash, they, they, they look nice and everything. But you can put them down and you can just do that and they're squashed. And it only takes a season, only a season. Around our churchyard, and I should know because I go out there and for two years in a row now, I've been raking the leaves by myself from 13 oak trees. And they come down, I tell you, I'm, I'm going to be working on cleaning up our road. I got the lawn done. We're cleaning out two uh, road ditches that the leaves blow into and everything. But uh, I tell you, those oak trees, they're old and they're prolific in the production of leaves. God isn't growing us as squash, which just takes a season a little bit. He's taking a lifetime. All you have to do is look at Philippians chapter 3. And 
I, I say that, not in, if you want to turn there, fine. But what, what it tells us in Philippians chapter 3 is that Paul said, I am not completely mature yet. I'm pressing on to that mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, but I'm not there yet. And about three verses later, he says, but I am, relatively speaking, there's no definite article, so it's a quality. I'm, I'm relatively mature. So I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm kind of mature, but I'm not absolutely, completely mature. This is the Apostle Paul talking. You know when he's going to be mature? Completely, completely. Everything that God has saved Paul to be, the, the, this one who the Holy Spirit has used as a revelator and the demonstrator of, of salvation and eternal life. You know when Paul's going to finally get there? Same moment you were going to get there at the rapture. And so we have these, um, uh, well, the last one again, I'm just going to, uh, you can go to uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 30 again, that, that uh, uh, stage of glorification of where the entire family is now finally brought to complete maturity. And uh, we've got Ephesians there uh, to, uh, again, kind of tell you that uh, the family is seen as uh, the church, the body of Christ. And here again, then we go back to Ephesians chapter 5 that tells us that he's working on us. But he's working on us collectively as one body, one family. Now he does it, he's doing it individually. But for what purpose? To collectively bring us to that place of absolute maturity. And when he presents, again, the church to himself, the body is complete and glorified. That's the end result of the growth of the family of God. That's now we're what God has planned and, and provided for us to be. Tim, tell me how much time do we have? Probably have a half hour. Half hour, good. Okay, let's run with this last half of this page here. Now we're going to get into what, oh, by the way, the reason we went through those five different viewpoints that scripture tells us that there are three stages. I read this book, Tim had it, he, he loaned it to me, but you know what, Tim? I gave it back to you, right? right. I gave it back to you and I think I didn't read it. But somebody else gave me this book and I didn't have to give it back to him. And I did read it. And this fellow, J.B. Hickson, is a pastor down in Texas. He graduated from uh, Dallas Theological Seminary and he did a good job uh, analyzing, he, he calls this book Getting the Gospel Wrong. Now we're going to look, in just a moment, we're going to look at what the gospel is for initial salvation and, and you will, you already know what it is and so forth. But here's the thing, how many folks in evangelical Christendom do not know what the gospel is? And he gives six different scenarios. Let me read the, uh, the six Let's see here. Come on, table of contents. You're kidding. Oh, here it is. Okay, here it is. Here's, he looks at six different ways that the gospel is presented. And I'm not going to explain it. You have to, I'll leave the book here and you can analyze it for yourself. I got it all written up and underlined and so forth. I don't know if that's a help or a hindrance. He's got the purpose gospel. 
the puzzling gospel, the prosperity gospel, the pluralistic gospel, the performance gospel, the promise-only gospel. And he, he associates different well-known names in evangelical Christendom with each one of these uh, gospels. When I looked at it, you know what the conclusion that I came to? You know why Christendom, that is even the true believers, are puzzled by what the gospel is? What I see in these six different positions is they take <coughs> the first installment of salvation, how you get into the family, and they combine it with the second stage of salvation, how you live once you're in the family. And they mash them together. And they say, unless you're doing this, you're not this. And that is totally not true. You believe the gospel and you're absolutely saved and you can sin as much as you determine. Now, we'll get into this too. Here's, here's the caveat. And this is another thing that I rarely see written among uh, uh, writers in evangelical Christendom. You know what? Just because you say, yes, I believe the gospel. What's the gospel? I can, and I, I tell it what it is. But your life is a mess. So you can't be saved. If that's who I am, and I can be, and if I continue being that way, you know what God is ultimately going to do? Take me home early. But he won't kick you out. He'll take you home early. You see, you never combine these two and say they're one stage of your salvation. There's the first stage, believing the gospel, and you get into the family by faith and faith alone. When, when Paul said in, in uh, Acts chapter 16, verse uh, 31, to the Philippian jailer, when he says, what must I do? Implying works, and why wouldn't the guy think I have to earn something? Paul didn't answer him in like kind. He said, what must I do to be saved? He's, Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. He didn't say believe and promise to turn over a new leaf. Believe and promise to, to do everything God wants you to do from here on out. There's no additions. Just that one requirement. Now, let's get into how we get into God's family. And let's see if we can do this quickly. Five questions we want to ask ourselves about how we get into God's family. Because that's what for, uh, present tense, or excuse me, past tense salvation or initial salvation or the first installment of salvation is about getting into the family. It tells us in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. How does God save people? By the power of the gospel. Now here's a question. What does the gospel mean? And what I'm going to tell you is this. Every time you see the word euangelion in the Greek, gospel, in the English, it's you have to look at the, the uh, surrounding context to understand well what gospel is it talking about I'm just going to give you a couple of examples about gospels that do not get you in to the family one gospel is this Mark chapter 1 verse 1 uses the word gospel 
The gospel of Jesus Christ, or the beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what Mark 1.1 says. The beginning, Mark is writing about the beginning of the good news. What's the good news? The good news about Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus Christ is this prophet. Remember when, when uh, Jesus said, well, who do men say that I am? Well, you're, you're one of the prophets. You're even one of the prophets that have come back from the dead. But you're a man. You're a prophet. That's Jesus Christ. But this gospel identifies this wonder worker, not simply as a human being, but as the Son of God. Now, you go through the book of, of Mark, and the word gospel is used eight times. And it's finally when you get to the 16th chapter that you finally see that Christ has died and been buried and has risen again from the dead. Now, it doesn't tell us there why he died. We're going to have to look a little further for why he died. But that's the elements of the gospel, that he died and rose again. And then the last usage of the eight usages of, of gospel is uh, now go into all the world and preach the gospel. <laughs> okay? Mark 1.1 1, 1 is not the gospel to get you saved. It just, it's a good news, absolutely a good news. It's a good news about Jesus Christ, who's actually the Son of God. But do you know that the demons believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God? And James chapter 2 says they know that, they believe that, and they tremble. <laughs> because that's going to be the source of their doom in the future. So just believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God will save nobody in and of itself. But boy, that's where it begins. It's with that person. So that's the good news. Another example is in Romans chapter uh, 16 verse 25 and uh, let me let's turn there I'm just I'm not going to read both verses and I don't want to get into the detail here because it's this this is a message in itself obviously but in Romans chapter 16 and verse 25 let's see here this is one I did not mark it says this Paul says now to him that is of the power to stabilize you according to my gospel. You know who he's talking to? The Roman church. Believers. The ones that in chapter 1, he said that there's a gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. That's the gospel you need to uh, know and understand and believe in order to enter into the family of God. But this gospel is, is given to people that he's been writing to and about and they're already believers. One of the biggest problems that many Christians have, and there's Christians that are pastors and, and professors in seminaries and Bible colleges and everything, they, they don't look at the context they don't see the detail. They don't look at the specifics. And so they generalize. It's easy to generalize. The gospel is the gospel. This gospel is for Christians, born-again Christians. And that's, by the way, that's the only people that the epistles are written to. We're going through a study in, in Hebrews, and one of the things that some good Bible commentators of the past and so forth say that it's written to to Jews 
uh, Jewish Christians to bring them out of the law, and it's written to Jewish unbelievers who are kind of wavering about should I believe this and be saved or, sh or should I just go back to my old way of life under the law? Hebrews is only written to believers. And you can see that time, and you read it for yourself, and you read who is being addressed. And they're called brethren in chapter 3, verse 1. And they're identified as ones who are called with a holy calling in that same chapter. And it goes on, and you can see this through the, the book. The New Testament epistles are written only for born-again believers. It's not written to unbelievers. You know what the one thing that, that is written concerning, concern, not to, but concerning unbelievers? The gospel. The gospel for initial salvation. Right. This is a stabilizing gospel. There's good news that, that Paul, uh, that the Holy Spirit through Paul has revealed in his letters of how to live the Christian life how to live the Christian life pleasing to God, how to do those uh, works of Ephesians 2.10 that have been pre-planned that you should walk in them. And, and to do that, you need to have victory over three old friends, over your sin nature that you enjoyed uh, fulfilling the lusts of it and the world system that is designed by Satan to uh, uh, cause you to your mind to be uh, taken away from the things of God's word and focus on the here and now and the fun and the, the material and all of that. And uh, Satan, Satan, whether we understand it or not, and certainly the unbelievers still in that situation realize that Satan is their father, John chapter 8. Three old friends have now become enemies. And God has provided through our New Testament salvation by grace everything we need to have victory over our sin, indwelling sin nature, over uh, the world system and over satanic attack. It's all there. And that's what will stabilize you. And all together, that's a stabilizing good news. But that isn't how you get into the family. That's how you live once you're in the family. So you see, there's a good news to get into the family, and then there's a good news of how to live once you're in the family. So you always have to look at the context. What is this context? How is this supporting this term gospel in this passage? And by the way, I've looked at, I don't know if I've looked at all of them closely, but I've looked and I'm still kind of going over in my mind, is this for initial salvation or is this for present tense salvation? So if you're, if you're you know, having a little difficulty when you do it, I, I, I understand, that's fine. By the way, what's God growing? Squash or oak trees? Oak trees. And, and does, does it take a summer or does it take a season or does it take a lifetime? A lifetime. A lifetime. All right, so let's get into what the gospel is. I hope you're not bored with, uh, oh, we're going over the gospel again. Well, this, this is what this particular uh, emphasis of our presentation here this weekend is about is the three tenses, and we got to find out, well, how did you get into it? Because here again, many born-again believers know that they are saved. And I'm one of them. I told this to Tim. I told it to other people. I was saved when I was nine years old. 
You know what the gospel is? Let's read it and then, and then we'll do these comments. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll just stick with uh, 3 and 4. You can go 1 through 4 if you want, but just 3 and 4. When my page turns, I'll be with you, folks. Here we go. For I, Paul says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, how that, and here it is, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And uh, back in verse 1, it says, This is the gospel by which you're saved. Here's the good news. Simply put, Jesus Christ is God. If that isn't clear to the individual, and they, they say, he died for my sins, he rose from the dead, if he's not the God-man, you've got the wrong Savior. The identification has to be accurate. The, the Christ that Paul was preaching and talking about was the Christ of Scripture. The second thing about this uh, gospel is... It was the complete payment, the complete payment for our sins on the cross. Christ died for what? We went over this Sunday in our, in our church. I, I, we looked at five passages that said, Christ died for you. But before we went over those passages, we, we looked at this one and one other one that says, Christ died for your sins. For your sins. The unbeliever needs to focus on that. If you didn't have sins, Christ wouldn't have come to die. But he died for our sins. Now, after you have believed that Christ died for your sins, and we're going to come to the other portion of it, that he rose again from the dead. But if you believe that, then you can look at these five verses that Paul writes in other sections of the epistles and understand Christ died for me. You see... As a Christian, I can look back at he died for my sins. That's accomplished. That's, that's great. He died for my sins. Now I can say he did it for me. He did it for But only a believer can say Christ died for me. Before, if, if a person is, is not yet, has believed these facts here about this good news, this gospel, they have to believe Christ died for my sins. Very important. And then three days later, he rose bodily from the dead. It tells us in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, the last verse in Romans chapter 4, that Jesus Christ was delivered for our offenses. Now, offenses, we're just going to put it this way. It, it sums up uh, our sin nature and the fountain of all our activities of sin of acts of sin. Our acts of sin have come from our sin nature. So our, the acts of sin and the fountain, the sin nature. Jesus Christ died uh, for, for our, uh, our sins, uh, both our acts and the nature it came from. Here it's emphasizing the fountain of where the acts came from. He was delivered for our offenses, and then the last phrase of that verse, he was raised again for our justification. The word justification means to be declared righteous. God says, Mark, you believe the gospel. You believe that my son, who is equal to me in deity, 
He took on flesh and he went to the cross 2,000 years ago and died for your sins completely, completely paid. And he rose bodily from the dead. Now we're going to see in a little bit why that is so important, why he rose bodily from the dead. Uh, well, it tells us right here, you couldn't be made righteous unless he was raised from the dead. I don't know if I'll get to it later, so I'll say it now. And if I remember it later, we'll say it twice. You and I are declared righteous because here again, I don't know which is which. Let's see. No, right, this one. It's this one. I got it. I got it. We're, we're in Christ. Christ is in us. Okay. We're in, because you're in Christ, you're declared to be righteous. We're not going to look at the, the passage. We, 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 it's in here. we got to keep running, though. But you're declared righteous. But it's only because he could ascend and did ascend to the Father's right hand. He rose from the dead, and he, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And it's there in the third heaven as, as the Father looks at his Son. He sees every believer from the day of Pentecost till tonight in his Son with his Son's righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We're righteous. What's the name of your church, Tim? First Baptist Church. Oh, First Baptist. Well, you got to change that. You know what I was fishing for. <laughs> I thought, I thought most Baptist churches were Grace Baptist Church. It's by God's unmerited favor. We are seen in our Savior with his quality of righteousness. In fact, Scripture tells us that it's like putting on a garment, and the garment is Christ with his righteousness. It's just a, a mental picture how we are seen in Christ. I don't want to get off on our little conversation this afternoon about being in Christ and all the weird concepts and so forth. Okay, I'm flipping my page here. I don't know where you folks are at. Okay, and then on D, under this first question, this first question is, what does God use to save people from sin's penalty of eternal judgment? It's the gospel. Under letter D, the requirement is that uh, individual believes, and notice how I put that, the absolute reality. The absolute reality of these facts. Christ is God. He paid for my sin when he died on the cross, and he rose bodily from the dead. Those, the actual uh, absolute reality of those facts, and for myself. Not because my parents may have believed it and taught it to me, or I heard it from a pastor or, I, or someone else. It's like I'm the only person in the room. It's like I'm the only person in the whole world. In fact, I've heard testimonies about people who when they, they heard the gospel and they were in a crowd, they said it, was, it became so real to them. It was like they were the, the only person in the room. And nothing else and nobody else mattered. It was so real. It was that real. Saying you believe is the easiest, one of the easiest things you, you can say. Deacons and a pastor uh, examine someone who wants church membership. 
relationship and they want to know if they're they're saved according to the gospel have you believed the gospel Let's see there's all those big guys there now. and I think they want me to say yes easy to say by the way that's a good reason why not why you shouldn't take people in immediately let them demonstrate the reality of their salvation that's not a, a hard thing or a bad thing let them demonstrate it even before you're water baptized a lot of times it's in a and, and by the way, the person might be genuinely saved, but let them demonstrate and let them understand. That's why we have baptism classes. When we baptize people, we want them to know what water baptism is about. It does not wash away your sins. And I don't care. Well, if I put it this way, I do care. Acts chapter 22 was at verse 16. Rise up, Paul, and wash away, be baptized and wash away your sins. Oh, now I threw a clinker in there and I've got to describe or explain that. You know what that's about? The water didn't wash away the sins to God. <laughs> no, no way. God knows the heart. Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 15, the two places where it says God who knows the heart. He knows. He doesn't need to see a water baptism. You know who what, that, what water baptism is demonstrating? It's to the people around you. Because they can't see your heart. But I like to see it have a, a demonstration, have some growth. You know there's three ways I can tell. God, God can tell if a person's a believer just because he knows the heart. And he knows it like that. You know how I know if there's if a person is genuinely saved, genuinely saved, and then still it's from my limited point of view. Three ways. If they have a, a fondness for the one that I know is my personal savior. If they are fond, they have a philos, a fondness. If they have a fondness for other individuals who are fond of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I use the word fond, I'm talking about fond because he's their savior, their personal savior. I'm fond of my savior. I'm fond of other people who have Christ as their savior. And here's a third one. I'm fond now of this book that was meaningless to me before. Now I'm fond of it and I want it and I want to know what it says. Three ways I can see. And that's not 100%. But that's a good indication. And that's as far as it can go with me. All right, moving on here. Uh, e, the result is that Christ's payment for your sins applied to you personally, and now you're completely and forever forgiven from your sin. I want to give you, uh, let me ask you this, Tim. Have you gone, you, have you gone over with your people what happened uh, to at Cornelius' household with Peter? You've, you people, are you familiar with that? 10 or 20 times. Oh, 10 or 20 times, okay. I'm not all I'm, I'm going to do is say this. You read it, and you read this passage, Acts chapter 10, you read how God prepared Peter. Peter would not have gone there except he was prepared to go in two specific ways. By that vision of the food, and we're not going to get into the explanation, but that was one of them. And then when the people uh, came from Cornelius, they knocked at the house, the Holy Spirit uh, indicates to Peter, you go with them and you don't ask any questions. Don't ask their background, don't have anything, you go. And when he goes, and I love this, what he said there at Cornelius' household, when you go to chapter 11, and 
the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem called Peter on the carpet and said, under the law, we as Jews, under the law, are not supposed to uh, have close contact and intimate association with Gentiles. And you went in. And Peter says, well, let me tell you the story. Let me tell you the story. And in that, he says this, I just began to speak. And so you look at these verses, verses 36 through 43, and you will see in there, you'll see in there his deity, he's the Lord of all, his, it, it's out of order, it's his resurrection, and then the last thing he says, that through his name, this one who died and rose again from the dead, who is God in flesh, this man who's the Lord of all, this one, through his name, is provided the forgiveness of sins. You know what happened next? You tell me. You've heard it enough. You've heard it 20 times. You say, tell me what happened next. What? Well, how did they know they believed? Did they, they saw the Holy Spirit? They spoke in tongues. That's how they saw that the Holy Spirit had saved them. Holy Spirit only gives spiritual gifts to believers. And there was no prayer uh, asking Christ in their heart. There was no invitation him or anything. They were just sitting there listening. And all of a sudden, they started speaking in tongues because the last thing Peter said was that through his name is the forgiveness of sin. And that's exactly what it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. Now, you can see the same thing in Paul's message there at the... Uh, synagogue in Antioch in, in, in chapter 13 and uh, let's see I'm going to be kind to you folks and uh, we'll, we'll pick up with the last four questions tomorrow and so we'll do it this way I just want to talk about Phil Robertson you know Phil Robertson? Raise your hand if you know Phil Robertson no of Phil Robertson I don't expect you to ever talk Okay. I don't know, it was about five years ago we were visiting uh, our daughter and family in Boise, Idaho, and, and she mentioned, uh, you gotta see this show, Duck Commander. It's, these people are weird. They got the long hair and long beards, and, and it's, it's funny and, and everything else. And so I became acquainted with that, and it was about that time at Costco, they will shop at Costco, in their book section, there was a book that came out that was written by this Phil Robertson that I just began hearing about, Anybody read the book? Or ever, anybody hear of the book? Happy, happy, happy. That was one of those old southern redneck uh, sayings. Happy, happy, happy. I tell you. Have you read it? No, she saw the book. I've seen it. Oh, I tell you. Read the book. It's quite, it put, put. you see how, how, how Paul came to Christ on the road to Damascus? Phil Robertson came to Christ out in the swamp. Really, I mean, and here's what I wanted to what I want to close with. They used to have this on YouTube. I saw it. Now, have you ever gone and seen or listened to anything that that uh, you have on YouTube? Okay, he has. There's a bunch of messages because Phil goes all over the country speaking at men's group and churches and so forth. And he has his old ratty Bible there that he's gone through. By the way, I don't know if he's ever gone to a class. I think he's uh, self probably a self-studier with his church. By the way, you know what his church is? What's the name of the town? Okay. I, West Monroe, Louisiana. West Monroe, Louisiana. Let me tell you this. It's not, he doesn't go to West Monroe Baptist Church. 
He goes to West Monroe Christian Church. Christian Church, warning lights. They're, they're one of those factions of the disciples of Christ. And if you look at anything about the disciples of Christ, they're one of the biggest work salvation groups there are out there. Well, there's a segment, and there, this is true with many evangelical churches. I'm not going to name them, and I'm not going to vouch for any of them, but to say this. There are evangelical churches out there. They may not know much about the Christian life accurately from Scripture, but they've got the gospel down, and they know it. And Phil Robertson is one of those brothers in Christ. On YouTube, because I like to cut to the chase, I found a five-minute video of Phil. He's a millionaire, by the way. Sitting outside of town, they live by a river where he can fish and hunt and everything else that he the show was about, the TV show was about. And he's sitting on, it's just a ranch-style house. Probably like three-bedroom, maybe two-bath, I don't know, just simple. He's sitting on some wooden steps, probably to a back door. And in five minutes, he gives his testimony. And he tells about the death and burial and death for his sins and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And, he and you, you know that he was convicted by the Holy Spirit. He talks about there was a six-foot hole that he was aware of that he was going to be going down into like everybody else has. And the Lord got his attention through the obvious reality of physical death. That got his attention, and he got in contact. Well, his sister was a believer, and I won't tell the whole story, but long story short, in five minutes, he does a wonderful job. I looked at that, I looked for it the other day. I could not find it anymore. I don't know who took it off there. Best five-minute video that 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 you, uh, YouTube had on there, but he's he's still got some other messages, and he he he, you know, he preaches for uh, uh, justice and liberty and God and country and so on and so forth. So he gets out into the the political realm and so forth too. But he knows who Jesus Christ is and that he's his personal savior, and he has led many people. I, I don't know if his, his spiritual gift is evangelist. It could be. But it's real because when you believe the gospel, this gospel, the gospel of 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, it's not about following Christ. Just follow. I hear that today. Follow Christ. Just how many here would like to follow Christ? Or ask Jesus into your heart. Well, you're getting a little closer. Ask Jesus into your heart. Well, what's that about? Believe on him. Well, isn't that what John 3.16 says? For God so loved the world, gave his only begotten Son, whosoever believes on him shall have eternal life. What well, believes? Isn't that what Paul said in, first, in Acts chapter 16, verse 31? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But the question remains is, believe what? And so... It's true. John 3.16. It's there. Acts 16.31. It's there. But you have to know who he is and what he accomplished. And if you leave that out and you're trying to help others have forgiveness of sin, they'll never experience that. 
unless they hear the particulars. You don't have to tell a person they're a sinner. I've never had a person that, that would, would say, well, I haven't sinned. They know, people know they're sinners. What they need is a savior. And when you explain this gospel, that's the only, that, that is what, what does it say in Romans 1.16? That is the power of God unto salvation. So that's how you get into the family. We've got four more questions. We'll pick them up uh, tomorrow sometime. And so we're just going to stop here and there, and we'll, we'll continue on, and that's how we're going to handle uh, our presentation this weekend. Thank you.